Thank you, though. Thank you so much. You guys sounded good. I appreciated that last song. It really ministered to my soul. Behold our God. It's a great song, isn't it? It's the second day of August 2020, and uh, here we are together. It's been an eventful season, even week. We laid to rest Brother Lloyd Yunker last Thursday. Pray for his dear family. He leaves behind a widow of 72 years, Miss Mildred. Pray for her and her family, please. Their sons. Yesterday was a waypoint for me. I turned 40. I can't deny that anymore. I'm in a new decade. Tuesday, we returned from vacation with, where we spent time with family in Arkansas, and I caught a 20-inch rainbow trout. I, I won't deny that either. Um, I listened to the first three sermons in this Hardy series while I was away. Uh, thanks to Pastor Kurt and Mark and Jonas for preparing to preach. Thanks to the Holy Spirit for breaking out last week. It was evident, those of you that were here last week, the Holy Spirit broke out, amen? It was an amazing week last week. I'm, I'm really grateful for God's work through His servant, Jonas. Today we continue in our series. It's the fourth in an eight-part series, Learning the Language of Lament. Learning the Language of Lament, key word is lament. Uh, there is a series study guide that's helpful for family follow-up after each sermon, and that series study guide is available on our church Facebook page perhaps on our website, too, under resources. The study guide is helpful. Uh, we followed it while we were away for three weeks, and it helped us to really bring the messages to home for our families. The series study guide is borrowed with permission from the author of the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Vrogop. And so when I occasionally quote him, I'll do it without reference, but I want you to know that I'm indebted to him for this entire series. Great tragedy in his life caused him to search the scriptures and discover the theme of lament is really from cover to cover in the text. And a full third of the Psalms is given to the topic of lament. And we turn today to a book of the Bible that includes the word lament in its title. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It comes just after the lengthy major prophet book of Jeremiah. It's titled Lamentations. A lament is a heartfelt cry of sorrow. A lament is a prayer when... One cries out to God because of the tensions or struggles that you feel in your life. Lament wrestles with the gap between what we know to be true about God and what is happening in our world. Lament is where we wrestle with questions like why or how in the world could this happen or why, why are you letting this happen to me now? Christian lament interprets pain. It takes the pain of a situation and identifies the brokenness underneath it and the fact that God delays deliverance. To lament can tune our heart and awaken us to what lies around us. Lament reminds us of the brokenness of the world or the circumstances. Laments can serve as a warning or a wake-up call to us as God's people. And Lamentations chapter 1 gives voice to the cries of the people from Jerusalem. It can serve to remind us that when God's people have gone too far... There can be no more remedy in the short term, and it can call us to what the solution is in the long term. We need to have a heart to see that grace is amazing because God's judgment is real. God's judgment because of His holiness is what lies underneath God's amazing expression of grace toward His people. And so we're going to see that today as we look at Lamentations. The setting of Lamentations 
is worth expressing since it's our first week in the actual book of Lamentations. It's either during or just after the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. If you're not familiar with the Bible very much or the history of this, let me just tell you that the northern the kingdom was divided into northern and, su- and southern after David's son reigned Solomon. The kingdom divided amongst Solomon's sons, and the divided kingdom was really a downward spiral from the heyday of David's kingdom, of King David. And so from 1000 B.C. onward, we see the United Kingdom slowly dividing, and the Northern Kingdom, because of its rebellion, would face exile at the hands of the ruling power of that time, the Assyrians, in about 722 B.C. Now, what you would think is that that would have taught a lesson to the Southern Kingdom, the two tribes, the kindred ones in the Southern Kingdom, but unfortunately it did not. And after 136 years passed, in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom fell to the hands of the ruling power of that time, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were brutal. And you're going to hear the brutality of the Babylonians unrestrained in Lamentations chapter 1. Uh, this is a chapter, it's, it's, it's almost stunning to read. And we're going to see, stunning more still, that Babylon is God's instrument to punish His people. It's a hard read, but it's a necessary read. In my Bible that I'm turning to now, page 888 through 896 contain the five brief chapters of Lamentations. Lamentations is set up symmetrically, meaning that it begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet in each chapter, and it ends with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first word of verse 1 is Aleph. The, se- the first word of, worse- of verse 2 begins with Beit, all the way down to Sheen and Ta, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's, it is artistically formed based around language, based around the alphabet. In, in our way of speaking, it would be the A to the Z. It would be if you put... Every letter in the alphabet, if you began that verse with A and then B and then C and then D, you would have a sense of how these chapters are formatted. So it's, it's an acrostic, it's symmetrical, it's symmetrical with the Hebrew alphabet. And so there are exactly 22 verses in chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5. And there are three times that many verses in the third chapter. There are 66 verses in chapter 3, all carrying this theme of lament. The book itself begins with the word how. That is significant, the translated word how. Uh, How could this have happened? How could this be? And so the chapter is trying to bring explanation to how this can be. It's, It's not so much a eulogy, a celebration of life, to put it in funerary terms. It's more of an elegy. It's a lament. It's a sadness that what once was is no longer. You'll get the picture. Let's let's look at it now. And I want to tell you how we're going to talk about this. This we're going to look at verses one through seven, and we're just going to get the state of affairs, which really continues through the whole chapter. But it'll you'll you'll get the the marrow of it through verse seven. Then we're going to see in verses eight through fifteen, we're going to see what caused that state of affairs to happen in Jerusalem, where God's people were. And then finally, as we look at verses fifteen and following down through verse twenty-two, we're going to see a glimmer of what the solution is for the state of affairs, for the, for the pain that's driving this lament. But it's, 
but it's going to be a, a, a solution that's coming. It's not going to be a solution that's easy and quick. There are going to be lingering ramifications for the long-term rebellion of God's people. And I hope at the end we can kind of pull those three aspects of this text together to see how we can benefit from heeding the warnings and living out the lament over sin in our broken world that we see on display through the pen of the prophet Jeremiah in this book of Lamentations, which in many ways serves as an epilogue to the 52 chapters of the book of Jeremiah. So that's a lofty overview of this part of the series, and it's an introduction to Lamentations chapter 1. So let's look at just the first seven verses, shall we? It says, How lonely, how, how, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Hey, can you stay with me for a second? How about we read this? You want to read this with me? I'll bring it back to you if that's okay. All right. Where was I? Exactly. Verse 4. Hey, listen, if we're going to have the kids in here for three months, we're going to have to figure this out together, aren't we? There's no need in getting uh, all disappointed about it. This, we have the kids in. Actually, we're working on this for next week. We're going to have, uh, I think, preschool and nursery coming back pretty soon, right? I think we're working on that. But I kind of like having them in here myself. I think they are providential distractions. Is this not the cutest little thing you've ever seen? Yeah. We are not social distancing, sweetie. It's just the way it happened today, but I do like you. Your name is a palindrome. Did you know that? It means that if you spell it backwards and frontwards, it says the same thing. Anyway, let's finish this part, and I'll give you back. What verse was I on? Four. Okay. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away. The children a blessing, and they've been separated. It's a terrible thing. Captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her, they mocked at her downfall. Let's pick up verse 8 as well. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Particularly verses 1 through 7. We see here in this first part of this chapter is the state of affairs. Think about it. I wrote a few words down to describe it as I was studying this this week. Have you ever been alone? She's alone. 
the city a her. She's alone. God's people are alone. Have you ever been faced being widowed or being a widower? Know someone that has. Alone, widowed, best days are behind you. Friends turned on you. Didn't prove to be very good friends to begin with, right? How about family split up? In this case, by exile. But split up, no less. Children away. Restless? Restlessness befall you? Does your hard work seem to know no end and no benefit to you economically? Little joy, bad counsel, adrift, hungry, stomach churning. Perhaps you haven't reached that point yet, but that's coming along here. The afflictions of these people are many, but namely, they are alone. They're scattered. They don't know their festivals anymore. The friends that they thought were friends are not friends at all. It is a tragic situation. The state of affairs are awful. Let's lean into this idea that the city was once bustling full of people and now it's empty. It says right there in verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. The situation is that the city has just a few people left in it. And anybody that would add value to the Babylonian Empire has been hauled off. And so the city itself is the roads grown, metaphorically speaking, about a city that once was, was prosperous, was bustling with culture, had economy. You could work and perhaps get ahead. No more. And, and how could this happen? Like a widow doesn't altogether get at it, but it gets at it to the extent of, my, this, this isn't the way that it should be. I'm not whole. There's language here that helps us to see that the people of God had entrusted themselves to other husbands. They had given themselves to all her lovers, verse 2 says. And they didn't prove to be very good husbands at all. No more Fourth of July, to put it in our parlance. No more festivals. No bartering in the city gate. No older, wiser men and women. No priestly pastors in the church. No brides-to-be, no weddings. Bitterly they suffer, overtaken in distress. The imagery is of one not knowing the danger that of one that is knowing the danger that's coming and being powerless to keep it from coming upon her. If you can imagine for a moment, your greatest foe was the person or the nation or the group that you'd least likely want to fall prey to. And imagine that entity, that group of people, that person, having absolute dominion over you, pursuing you, taking you captive, These were captive before the foe. The foes gloated. The foes mocked. They despised God's people. They're not gracious winners, just to put it in in sports language. This is war, though. One commentator on this chapter, as I was reading, said it like this. He said, we have a tendency when we explore the history of God's people, Israel, we have a tendency to compress the timeline in our mind and to become clinical about our explanation of it. You know, here it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they went through a bunch of slavery, but they were delivered. Well, there was 400 years there. There was a lot of stuff to lament about. Life was lament, right? And, and there's, there's a sense we walk through the Bible that way. We think, well, 
the, the, the people of God were exiled in 586 B.C., but they returned in 516 B.C. And we know that they did return in 516 B.C. The Bible talks about it in books like Haggai. However, however, the people of God lived in the land of lament for 70 years. 70 years they lived in the land of lament. 586 B.C. to 516 B.C. I mean, it's really a tough thing to just take this text and compress it to the point. It's not helpful to compress it to the point that God's people, well, they had a hard time, but then they got over it. No, they lived in this lament. And some of you today, you really do need to pause and consider for yourself that the Bible carves out space for your pain. God carves out space for you to mourn, to weep, what has been and what is not now. God carves out space, and there's a reason for it. And we're going to get into that here in a moment. But it's important in this first point to just realize that God is not ambivalent towards your plight. It's not that he doesn't care because he hasn't acted yet. The issue of God's sovereignty and human suffering is a long-since-discussed issue in the world of religion and human life. And I just want you to understand that the Christian religion, while it cannot perfectly resolve the issue of God's suffering and sovereignty right now to your specifications if you're in pain, I can guarantee you that Christianity, uniquely compared to all the other religions of the world, Christianity carves out space for a God who welcomes your complaint during your pain, who encourages you to cry out to him about your plight, and who promises to never, ever give up on his people. That's the Christian religion in a nutshell. In 586 B.C., the people were absolutely decimated and borderline hopeless. That's the state of affairs. Let's look, secondly, at the cause of the state of affairs. How did we get there? Well, in a word, sin. And I'm not just talking about like they stumped their toe and said a bad word and God decided to bring the hammer down and leave a little greasy spot where that person used to be. No, no, no. I'm talking about generational sin. I'm talking about buying into the idea that we don't really have to agree with God about what sin is. Just, just sort of wanton living the way we want to live and then thinking that God's just going to take care of us because we've got a history of a track record of being God's people. And they found out after they rejected prophet after prophet after prophet, after the vast majority of their kings were evil, priests compromised, sanctuaries defiled, they found out that God would, in fact, punish his people. There would be consequences for their behavior. So the cause of lament, in a word, is sin. Look at verse 8 again, and then we'll follow down through verse 14. Jerusalem sinned. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter a sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread and they trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. 
which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones, he made it descend, he spread a net for my feet, he turned me back, he has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, into a yoke by his hands, they were fastened together, they were set upon my neck, he caused my strength to fail, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The cause of this state of affairs that continues to be described In a word, sin. God's people had sinned. And God saw fit to punish them. The enemy has been allowed here to misuse the place of worship. Nothing is sacred anymore. God's godness is no less because the temple has been destroyed. It would again be rebuilt. It wouldn't be what it was before its former glory. But the temple would be rebuilt. But in this season, it's destroyed. The temple's being defiled. The people of God are without a place to worship, without a direct connection to God, as they would understand it. And Jerusalem has sinned grievously. She has no comforter. She feels like she has no comfort. It's, it is a terrible situation. Gold is worth only what it can be traded for so you can get a piece of bread to eat. They trade their treasures for food, verse 11 says. The bottom has fallen out of the economy. There's nothing left of culture. It's meal-to-meal, it's need-to-need, sustenance. Revive their strength is what they're needing, verse 11. And Jeremiah, like a a counselor of sorts, is giving voice to the people's prayers, and he's talking to the people all at the same time. Imagine Jeremiah. Imagine Jeremiah, after having prophesied and prophesied and prophesied, knowing of the fall of his people after Josiah was killed in battle in Megiddo. And Armageddon on Mount Megiddo. After Josiah was killed, he was the last really good king. And just watching, it's like watching a train wreck getting ready to happen in slow motion and not being able to do anything about it. That's what Jeremiah's life was like. And now he's called the weeping prophet. Now he's faced with trying to give voice to a people in exile being scattered in all this loneliness. Jeremiah is a great example for us today. Because in a, in, a, in a sea of false prophets, false prophetic voices, false priestly figures, you have a need for Jeremiah-like voices to, to agree with God on what sin is. Jeremiah continued to agree with God on what sin is, and he continued to tell the people of God when they were sinning. And they rejected the voice, and they ran away from it, and they found other churches, and they found other teachers, and they left, and they wouldn't have of it. And this goes on for decades. And Jeremiah, read Jeremiah 1 through 52. So much so that Jeremiah's hope was really in a far-off new covenant, if you read Jeremiah 29 and 31, that would eventually come. And we'll end the sermon with that today. But I need to bake here for a little bit because the Bible bakes here. And you need to marinate on the fact that God's faithful people don't always get blessed numerically and with attaboys and amens. I'm so encouraged by the fact that you encouraged me. But I don't expect it. Because for me to expect it would be for me to make an idol out of your praise. Do you understand that? And Jeremiah never got such accolade. No doubt a man of God as you read through this. It's no doubt that he was a prophet recognized in the canon of Scripture as such. 
But friends, we have to start counting success the way God counts success. We need to stop counting success the way that the world counts success. In God's economy, it is a success when we agree with him on what sin is. In God's economy, it is a failure if we manage to grow numerically while at the same time whittling away at the foundation of God's holiness and what he calls sin. Isaiah the prophet said it like this, Woe to him who calls good evil and evil good. Woe to him who calls good evil and evil good. We have to recover the language of lament in no small part because we have to recover the language of God in what sin is. Jeremiah, in short, in brief, describes in the book of Jeremiah the lead up to this train wreck that he could see coming, but they wouldn't repent. He calls them as spiritually idolatrous. They're spiritually committing adultery against their, their husband, if you will, against God. And now what are they described as? They are like a widow. They're like they don't have a husband now. They're alone. It's almost as if God said, okay, you want to do life without me? Here you go. I, you want my hand of protection removed? Here you go. Wow. I mean, this sort of thing could never happen to us, could it? Surely we would never be stomach churning, kids separated. Surely this kind of destruction could never befall us, could it? And some astute Bible scholar will say back to me, listen, now Israel's Israel, America's America. You don't need to be making this connection between Israel and America. Oh, fine. Do you think God blesses nations and curses nations? All right. Is it important for a nation to have voices that say, thus saith the Lord, this is good, this is evil, this is following God, this is sinful. Isn't that important? Lamentation screams how important it is. And particularly for us as a church to have a voice, a prophetic voice, meaning what the word says we tell the world, in the culture, we do not do God's bidding by disagreeing with God on what sin is. The people of God had disagreed with God on what sin was. And confession, by definition, is when we return to agreement with God on what sin actually is. Now, I'm not giving as many descriptive words for what sin is in this sermon. Jonas did a really good job with that last week. And I would point you back to that audio. But just in brief, spiritual adultery is what they had done. They had sexually sinned. They had defiled the sanctuaries. Their worship was impure. The, things, the way that they were living their lives was in open rebellion against God. As if God would never punish them. Now, in this point, too, 
as we're looking at the cause, which is sin. Before we move on to point three, I just want to say this, and I hope it helps someone. I hope it helps someone. If you are in a pattern of sin, you sinned last month, and I'm, not, and I'm talking about, you know, like really sinned. I'm just talking about you had a little moment. I mean, you really sinned. And you sinned last, if you sinned last night, if you sinned last week, and you're living a life of, of spiritual adultery. And, and that's your life. And, and this morning, you feel a shred of guilt about it. I want you to understand that guilt is God's means of grace. Do not treat it as an imposition on your otherwise good life. Because when God stops dealing with you, when you stop feeling guilty for doing things that God calls sin, that's when you really need to be worried. That's when you need to, I mean, that's when you really need to, wow, God's not even dealing with me. When you feel guilty for sin, that's not the same as repenting of that sin. We'll get to that. But it is a big thing that you recognize that you're sinning. Do you understand, without the prophetic voice, without agreeing with God on what sin is, you wouldn't even have the vocabulary, you wouldn't have the language to say, I'm guilty, that's sin. Do you understand that? Don't don't push that away as an imposition. If you feel guilty about a pattern of sin in your life, about an activity of sin in your life, please talk to an elder in the church. Go find an older, wiser man or woman in the church and share your issues with them, your sin, so that you have a place that you can interact on how to live out repentance from that life pattern. Don't run from the conviction of God. That's what had happened to Judah after Jerusalem after seeing Israel fall, the northern kingdom. For years, they not only saw what God did to punish his people, but now they're living out this rebellion at every level. They're committing spiritual adultery, and they will not listen to prophets, true prophets like Jeremiah. And they push it back, and they push it back, and they push it back. And I just want to tell you today, I just want to tell you, that guilt is way better than the destruction that's going to happen to you. It's so much better. It is better for you to respond to that guilt and deal with whatever temporary consequences comes with redressing that sin than it is to keep pushing it away and pushing it away until you don't feel it anymore, for one, and two, you face absolute destruction. There's actually a destruction that goes beyond the badness of the destruction that we're talking about here in Lamentations, and that's called hell. That's eternal destruction. But this is definitely hell on earth being described in Lamentations chapter 1. It's definitely hell on earth. And I will tell you this. It is better for you to face the prospects of hell on earth than hell in hell. So there's this misteaching out there where sometimes we, we don't, maybe we don't even mean it. Maybe some, of, some folks do mean it. But there's this idea that if you just repent of your sin... Acknowledge your guilt, repent of your sin. The consequences of that sin temporally in the here of now are going to be washed away too. And the truth of the matter is, that's not the truth in the matter. You repent of your sin, you may still face family consequences. 
You may face, you may have to fight an addiction, a sin. You may be delivered from it and yet still have to fight against it from time to time. You may have temptations. You may have wrecked people's lives because of whomever you've done whatever with. And it may, there may be consequences. This is, the, this is the problem is sometimes we set this thing up like if you just repent, all that's going to be fine. If you face any adversity, then God's just not reliable. That's not the case. Like, these people in Lamentations are beginning to lean into their guilt. Jeremiah is giving voice to it. And their consequences don't go away for 70 years. They don't even go away after that. I mean, they, come, they return, and Ezra and Nehemiah helps them reestablish worship, rebuild the temple, and it's still not ever what it was, and it's certainly not what it was with David. And they have to look forward to a new covenant. And, so, and I want you to understand that that is a bit of a parable for us. Even though we're washed as Christians in the blood of Christ, there is some distance between the initiation of your salvation and your recognition in a resurrected body in the presence of Christ. There is this distance, and there are consequences for sin. Sometimes there are consequences because of sins, as I've described, that you've committed. That's really the, the marrow of lamentations. But sometimes you're one of those people in Jerusalem that was actually trying to listen to Jeremiah, and you get swept up in the exile too. And I want to talk to you for just a moment if you're that person. I've talked about where you are facing consequences for your sin because it's your sin, and you should claim that. But what about those of you that you, you weren't bought into all the spiritual adultery and you still face the consequences of the wrath of God on a corporate group? I want, to say, I want to try to encourage you to, like Jeremiah is doing here, not just blame everybody, but take responsibility with the people. Take the people's punishment and help them, even though they don't deserve it, help them. Walk with the Lord in repentance. Because none of us are perfect anyway, right? I mean, none of us perfectly didn't spiritually apostatize. I think there's something there for you. Let's be very careful as we see a culture not understanding and not agreeing with what sin is. And we see that somewhat in the church. As God is waking people up, let's be very, very careful that we don't heap scorn on the people that are waking up because we're self-righteous. That's to miss mercy, isn't it? And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you lie to them about what sin is. By no means am I saying that. I'm just saying, don't punish the people that are feebly learning to repent. Embrace them and walk with them. You can't want it more than they want it. they got to want it too, but you can want it with them. And so there are times we face the discipline of the Lord because He loves us, and it's an instructive and a formative discipline, but it is not a corrective discipline because we don't need corrective because we're like Job. We didn't actually sin. We didn't actually sin to create that situation. And then, as I've said already, there are some in here that, that you, you really have sinned, and the consequences that we face and you face are a result of your sin. Proportionally, there's a straight line, and you need to own it. It's called corrective discipline. But in all of it, the fact that we can maintain a vocabulary of what sin is in God's eyes and agree with him, that is a wonderful gift from the Lord. Finally, the third point is the solution, and it's really a delayed solution. The solution to our consequences, to the state of affairs that we're in, that are caused by our sin, the solution is to talk to God about it. It really is. It sounds so simple, but when you're running from God... You're really not talking to him about it. And when you're blaming everybody that's running from God for the state of affairs in the culture, you're really not talking to God about it. The solution is to talk to God 
in the language of lament. That's what helps us here. The language of lament is how you talk to God. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is the language of how you talk to God when things aren't right. And they're not right. Like this airbrushed version of Christianity that we've, we've had for some time has got to go. The, the wages of sin is death. And we see the wages of sin all over our culture, don't we? We see, the, we see it in our churches. Death. Death of loved ones. Death of marriages. Death of unborn children. We see death upon death upon death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and we need a visceral response to death in our world. It's not all good. This is not made for TV. This is life on life, and the language of lament helps us to repent by just first talking to God, just saying, this isn't right. I'm starting to be awakened to what's wrong in the world. And it's not just about the power of positive thinking. As a matter of fact, that's not the gospel. Let's listen to these last verses and, and kind of pull this together, if God would be gracious to help us do that. Look at verse 15 and following. The Lord rejected all the mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in winepress the virgin daughter of Judah, Judah meaning the southern kingdom, 586 B.C., hauling them off. Verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Verse 18, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The worshipful language of God's people is Zion there, referring to that way. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob, against the people of God, that his neighbors should be his foes. Nobody neighborly. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The end of verse 17. This is... Awful. But there is a pivot point in verse 18. And, and listen to how it reads. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. I'm not right. I'm not blaming you for the way that you are. Not anymore. I'm not not talking to you. I'm saying to you, this is the state of affairs. I know you know this is the state of affairs. I want you to know you're right. Your definition of holiness is right. Your definition of sin is right. I'm the one that's rebelled against your word, and I'm throwing myself at your mercy seat. And listen to, listen to how it goes on. That's really the pivot point in this chapter. But listen to how it goes on for, for holistic reading of, of Lamentations 1. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity gone into Babylonian captivity. Verse 19, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength and starved to death. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. I've been rebellious. In the streets, the sword bereaves in the house. It is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there's no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Wow. You've brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. He says, would you do to them what you've done to me? And eventually God would answer that prayer after 70 years. Eventually Babylon would fall in a turn of time. Look at verse 22. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. Deal with them as you dealt with me because of all my transgressions. So I deserved it. I was going to ask if you would punish them too because they've got their foot on my neck and I can't hardly stand it. It's a reasonable prayer. 
And Jeremiah is giving voice to the people's prayer, interacting with the people in dispersion. My groans are many, my heart is faint. Faint hearted groaning. Mmm. Groaning and pain. It's hard to know something of it, isn't it? Groans, faintness, hunger, captive, exile. How, how, how? It's a little bit easier to embrace this minor key type song, this, this unresolved note of, lament, of lament and lamentations that lament is like because of the crisis we currently live in, because of the state of affairs that we currently live in. I think if I had started this series even six months ago, we'd started it on like January 1st or February 1st, I, I think it would have been a little bit harder to, gr- to kind of break down and deconstruct glamorous Christianity, but it's not so hard to do now, is it? I mean, we see that Christians suffer too. We see that the few faithful got carted off to Babylon too with all those that had committed spiritual adultery. We see that we're faced with very similar problems, and I think in God's providence, He led us to this series before the events of 2020, don't you? Now, we didn't just decide to preach Lamentations last week. We've been talking about this for many, many months and this was on the calendar before we saw all the events that were going on in COVID and situation with social unrest in our country. I just want you to know today a few concluding thoughts based on that reality in this chapter and the clear teaching of God's word. First of all, God is still sovereign no matter what the state of suffering is amongst people. He's very much in control when Jerusalem is left in an ash heap. When you feel like a widow, he's still there. He's waiting on you to lean into talking to him. He's still there. You think this morning, I've gone so far from God, I couldn't possibly come back. That is not true. That is not true. You have got a pulse and a breath. You can come back to the Lord. I'm not going to tell you there's not going to be consequences, but I'll tell you what, the consequences pale in comparison to the consequences. Come to him now. Secondly, agree with God with what sin is, no matter what everyone else says. Everyone else is going to face the same destruction. You agree with God about what sin is because you agree with God about what his holiness is. Agree with God about what sin is, especially when it comes to sexuality, especially when it comes to life. Agree with God. Agree with God about what sin is. It's very important that you agree with God. And what you can do is when you come to agree with God about what sin is, is you can confess when you haven't. That's really what confession is. And I want you to know, if you can embrace those two things now, I want you to know that God is faithful to you and that he will cleanse you. You think, you think in, in, in all the courage it takes to come to the Lord and say, I've been, I've been grievously sinning against you. you. You think that he's just not going to hear you, but it's not true. I think of, of verses like 1 John 1, 9 in the New Testament that says, if only we would confess our sins and agree with God about what sin is, He's faithful and He is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a beautiful promise from God? Jeremiah's prophecy about New Covenant Christianity has come through in the person and work of Jesus Christ and He is our Savior. And the Spirit doesn't come and go, it comes and stays, it indwells us. As blood-bought children of God, we have a heart of stone taken out and a heart 
of warmth put in, a heart of flesh, that we might be able to worship God in spirit and truth and offer ourselves as living sacrifices no matter what's swirling on around us. We are aliens and exiles here, as First Peter says. The prophecy of Jeremiah came true because God never forgets his people. What I'm asking you to do today is if you've wandered from the Lord, to return to the Lord on the Lord's terms. I'm asking you to trust him with whatever consequences will come. And if you've never followed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm asking you to come to him today in prayer. I'm asking you to call out to him and say, please save me. Please make me with your people. Please forgive me of my sins and make me clean inside because I want to confess my sins to you and claim the promises that you make that we can have eternal life and that you're faithful and just to all to us all in all time in all things no matter what's going on out here so i want to call you to that this morning as we begin this journey through the book of lamentations and so we're going to sing together i want you to stand and i want to lead you in a word of prayer before we sing together songs that help us to reflect on this message this morning for our god dear heavenly father thank you for the opportunity to be together today and to consider the language of lament thank you for leaning us into the solution of just by talking to you, even if we don't have a magic fix for everything that's around us right now. Help us to do what's best next by agreeing with you on what sin is rather than trying to fix everything else around us that we think is wrong and all that's wrong with the misuses of the structure in the world and the pain that we feel. I pray you would help us to just be faithful even when there's an ash heap around us. Help us to be faithful today by beginning to learn the language of lament. In Jesus' name, amen.